Welcome back to Roshcast episode 9. Thanks again for listening and subscribing. Let's jump right into the rapid review from last week. People seem to enjoy the Hematuria word association, so I'll kick it off with more of the same. Let's go. First up, we have red-colored heme-positive urine with a UA without RBCs. Red urine without RBCs? That's got to be rhabdomyolysis. Next, we have hematuria and hearing loss. Hematuria and hearing loss. That would be Alport syndrome. Exactly. Next up, we have hematuria and hemoptysis. The association you're getting out here is good pastures. Strong work with that review. Changing gears entirely, do you remember, do VP shunt obstructions occur more commonly proximally or distally? VP shunt obstructions are more common proximally, and they're often due to choroid plexus obstruction or increased protein in the CSF. Great. And the last question is a two-part question. What is the most commonly implicated bacteria in fight bites, and how do we treat it? Well, in human bites, we're concerned for Iconella, and the treatment is amoxicillin clavulinate. I think that's enough of a review of last week's material. As always, don't forget to check out last week's episode and our blog post at roshreview.com slash blog that covers all these topics in far more detail. Let's stick with the bacteria theme and start with an ID question. A 45-year-old alcoholic presents to the ED complaining of fever and cough for three days. Which of the following organisms is the most common cause of pneumonia in this population? Is it A, group A strep, B, Klebsiella pneumonia, C, Legionella pneumonia, or D, Streptococcus pneumonia? So you're asking specifically about an alcoholic with pneumonia. Alcoholics are highly susceptible to pneumonia for many reasons, including their decreased cough reflex, malnutrition, poor oral hygiene, and smoking habits, to name just a few of the big reasons. Although the classic association is choice B, Klebsiella, don't forget that choice D, strep pneumonia, is still the most common cause. This question actually had a 50-50 split amongst those who answered it in the question bank already. So let me reiterate. Even in alcoholics, strep pneumo is still the most common cause of pneumonia, even though Klebsiella is often seen in this population. Group A strep pneumonia is pretty rare and has a high mortality. Legionella pneumonia is also pretty rare. It's associated with hyponatremia and vomiting. It's more often seen in the elderly or immunocompromised. Legionella pneumonia is often spread by a contaminated water source or air conditioning system. All great points. Although not offered in the question here, there are also a couple of other great pneumonia classic associations that I think are worth going over. Strep pneumonia is typically associated with a quote-unquote rusty-colored sputum, whereas Klebsiella pneumonia is typically associated with a quote current jelly sputum. Staph aureus pneumonia is typically associated with IV drug abusers and can also be seen after influenza. Pseudomonal pneumonia can be found with those with cystic fibrosis, nursing home residents, and those recently on ventilators. Finally, H-flu is seen more frequently in those with COPD. Great review. Let's move on to the next question. Amazingly, the next question is also about an alcoholic, and it's also a 45-year-old alcoholic. A 45-year-old man with a history of alcohol abuse presents with numbness and weakness of his left hand. He slept on a bench last night and awoke this morning with the symptoms. Physical examination reveals decreased sensation over the first, second, and third digits and a wrist drop. What management is indicated? Is it A, a CT of the cervical spine, B, an MRI of the brain, C, a non-contrast CT scan of the head, or D, a wrist splint and follow-up with neurology? Let's break this down. This guy has a wrist drop, meaning weakness of the extensor muscles of the forearm. He also has a numbness over the first through third digits. Both of these point to a radial nerve palsy, also known as a Saturday night palsy. The Saturday night palsy should be placed in a wrist splint, and the patient should follow up with neurology. Choices B and C, MRI or non-con CT of the head, 
Both would be used to rule out a central insult. Choice A, CT of the cervical spine, might be used to assess spinal causes. Right, and the insult in Saturday night palsy is typically associated with compression of the radial nerve in the axilla. Although spontaneous recovery often occurs, symptoms can take two to four months to resolve completely. Two to four months, that's a long time for a sleeping injury. Let's press on to the next question. Which of the following is true regarding infective endocarditis? Is it A, Janeway lesions are tender erythematous macules? B, surgery is indicated for fungal endocarditis? C, the mitral valve is most commonly involved in intravenous drug abusers? D, the presence of fevers is one of the major due criteria for the diagnosis of endocarditis? Tough question here meant to trip you up. The correct answer here is choice B, surgery is indicated for fungal endocarditis. Choice A is actually describing Osler nodes, which are tender erythematous macules found on the fingertips. Janeway lesions, on the other hand, are non-tender erythematous macules, which are seen on the palms, soles, and fingers. Choice C is incorrect because the tricuspid valve, not the mitral valve, is the most commonly implicated in IV drug abusers. Lastly, in choice D, fever is actually a minor Duke criteria, not a major one. I remember a pretty good mnemonic here. For bacterial endocarditis, remember from Jane to help you remember some of the things you might see in infective endocarditis. F for fever, R for Roth spots, O for Osler nodes, M for murmur, J for Janeway lesions, A for anemia, N for nail bed hemorrhage, and finally E for emboli. That's a great mnemonic. Before we move on, let's play a quick game of Name That Bacteria, Endocarditis Edition. Wait, what? You'll see. All right, bacterial endocarditis and IV drug use. Oh, I think I get it. So bacterial endocarditis, IV drug use, that's the tricuspid valve and staph aureus. That's right. How about native valve endocarditis? Well, that would be streptococci, affecting mostly the mitral valve, followed by second most commonly, the aortic valve. Excellent. How about prosthetic valves and endocarditis? The association here is prosthetic valves and endocarditis. That's referring to staph epi. And lastly, endocarditis with a GI malignancy. Hmm, cancer in the colon, bovis in the blood. You're talking about strep bovis here. Perfect. Let's move on to the next question. A 75-year-old man with dementia is admitted to the hospital for renal failure and dehydration secondary to vomiting and diarrhea. In the following days, he becomes pancytopenic. His family later arrives and reports that he recently suffered a gout flare and intentionally took more of his gout medication to control the pain than he was prescribed. Ingestion of which medication would account for this patient's presentation and lab findings? Is it A, acetaminophen, B, colchicine, C, indomethacin, D, oxycodone, or E, prednisone? Well, you're referring to choice B here, colchicine toxicity. That's right. Why don't you walk us through the typical course of a severe colchicine overdose? Good idea. In the first 2 to 24 hours of a colchicine overdose, most people experience severe GI distress, such as our patient above. Following that, in days 2 to 7, you see bone marrow suppression, rhabdomyolysis, renal failure, metabolic acidosis, and in worst cases, ARDS. If the patient is lucky and is able to survive all of that, beyond day 7, you can see a rebound leukocytosis, transient alopecia, and then a very slow recovery. Great review. Because the symptoms are so severe, most patients with colchicine overdose will require hospital admission. There's a high risk of sudden cardiac death in the first 24 to 48 hours of ingestion for these patients. I think this is also a great time for an unsupported plug of the poison center, whoever your local poison center may be, because they'll remind you of all of these things so you can be on the lookout for them. Let's move on to the next question. 
A 55-year-old man presents with right-sided chest pain and a dermatomal vesicular rash for four days. What management should be initiated? Is it A, diphenhydramine, B, pain control, C, topical antibiotics, or D, topical corticosteroids? Right-sided chest pain with a dermatomal vesicular rash? This man is presenting with herpes zoster. The correct answer here would be choice B, pain control. Choice D is close, but oral steroids are used, not topical. And although it hasn't fully been proven yet, we often prescribe an antiviral such as acyclovir if the patient presents within 72 hours of onset or has new lesions forming. Exactly. And the pain is often severe and debilitating and unfortunately can last for months in the form of chronic post-herpetic neuralgia. The patients I've seen have all been truly miserable and require multimodal pain control. Let's do one last question before we do the rapid review. Which ultrasound finding is consistent with the pneumothorax? Is it A, A lines, B, absence of lung sliding, C, B lines, or D, the presence of lung sliding? This one is fairly straightforward, but it's an important core EM question. Choice B, the absence of lung sliding, is consistent with the pneumothorax. Going over the other answer choices here, A lines are horizontal lines that are seen in normal lungs. They're actually reflections of the pleura. B lines are vertical hyperechoic lines that are noted in pulmonary edema, and lung sliding is seen on a normal lung exam. Definitely core EM. Time for a rapid review from today's episode. Although Klebsiella pneumonia is commonly seen in alcoholics, streptococcal pneumonia is seen more frequently. Strep pneumonia is classically associated with a rusty-colored sputum. Klebsiella pneumonia is associated with a current jelly sputum. Radial nerve palsy commonly occurs after sleeping with pressure on the axilla or in prolonged use of crutches. It's associated with wrist drop and decreased sensation in the first through the third fingers. Treatment is supportive with a wrist splint and outpatient follow-up. Remember the mnemonic from Jane for bacterial endocarditis. F for fever, R for Roth spots, O for ulcer nodes, M for murmur, J for Janeway lesions, A for anemia, N for nail bed hemorrhages, and lastly, E for emboli. Tricuspid endocarditis is associated with staph aureus and is often seen in IV drug users. In those with native valve endocarditis, the mitral is the most frequently affected valve, followed by the aortic valve. For GI malignancy and endocarditis, suspect strep bovis. Remember, cancer in the colon, bovis in the blood. All symptomatic colchicine overdoses must be admitted because of the elevated risk of sudden cardiac death. Possible complications include renal failure, rhabdomyolysis, bone marrow suppression, and ARDS. The mainstay of treatment for herpes zoster outbreak is pain control. Oral prednisone and acyclovir may also be used. The absence of lung sliding on ultrasound is indicative of a pneumothorax. On lung ultrasound, A lines are normal findings. They represent the reflections of the pleura. B lines are hyperechoic lines seen in pulmonary edema and are often described as car headlights illuminating the thorax. And with that, episode nine is officially in the books. As always, send us your feedback at roshcast at roshreview.com to help us make this even more high yield. See you next week for episode 10. 